In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We begin at the month of October with the feast of this wonderful saint, the little flower, Saint Therese of the Child Jesus, Saint Therese of Lisieux. And uh, she has inspired uh, many, many people to desire sanctity, despite the fact that she, only, she was only 24 years old when she died. I believe it was... Uh, 1890 or 95 or something like that before the 20th century she didn't enter into the 20th century and she has inspired a lot of people really inspired them to sanctity to simplicity to humility to love of God and uh, part of it is because uh, her image uh, is very attractive. She has their beautiful images of Saint Therese somewhere. She's shown uh, since she was the sacristan. She's shown uh, counting hosts and putting them in a beautiful ciborium, uh, and other beautiful pictures of her that were taken on on a particular occasion in the convent. Somewhere she's cleaning uh, linen in this big open basin before they had washing machines, of course. And others where she's shown as a young woman before she was even in the, in the convent. And all the images are very, uh, somehow very tender and very beautiful without being uh, saccharine, without being saccharine or overly sweet. And so she's inspired many, but above all because of her autobiography. And what comes out of there is her deep desire for sanctity. That's what inspires so many. That is to live out the call of God, the call from God in her life is what she wanted to do. And this does not mean that the call from God was easy. God's call is not always easy and often it is actually very demanding, very difficult. Nor does it mean that she found it difficult to discern, rather that she found it easy to, di to discern her vocation. She couldn't necessarily discern it all that easily. I mean, we know she went just directly into the convent at a very young age, younger than usual. But uh, even once she was already in the convent, she had her doubts what her real place was. And in her autobiography, she recounts her struggles to discover this. She was not, she was not satisfied with facile explanations you know, just being told to pray and everything will be fine. It's okay. Just pray. And you'll, it'll be fine. I saw this uh, when I was in the hospital recently, surrounded by a lot of people who are suffering and going through hard times. There was one like a, like a bulletin board or, yeah, with a paper written. It said, it's all going to be okay. You know, and with a smiley face, you know. 
uh, well, not necessarily. You know, there are people dying here everywhere, every day, you know, and with emergencies and uh, crippled and uh, suffering a lot. It's all going to be okay. Well, maybe for some it's going to be okay, but for a lot of the people here it's not, at least not physically. And na naturally, it's all going to be okay is a nice invitation to hope and to encouragement and God bless those who wrote that. I somehow doubt it was written with supernatural intent, but maybe it was. I don't know. It just doesn't seem all that uh, convincing. So when uh, Therese was in this situation, she was trying to find her place in the church. And this is, this is what, her, what she wrote in her autobiography. It was uh, present in today's, um, today's uh, Office of Readings, you know, the, the breviary, the priests have to say, that they, there's an excerpt every Office of Readings uh, where we read from the fathers of the church or, or the doctors of the church, and she's a doctor of the church, so... And it's, she says, Since my longing for martyrdom was powerful and unsettling, so she, that's, she thought that's how she thought was her place, to be a martyr. It was powerful and unsettling. I turned to the epistles of St. Paul in the hope of finally finding an answer. By chance, the 12th and 13th chapters of the first epistle to the Corinthians caught my attention. And in the first section, I read that not everyone can be an apostle, prophet, or teacher, that the church is composed of a variety of members, and that the eye cannot be the hand. Well, even with such an answer revealed before me, I was not satisfied and did not find peace. She was like, you know, the person seeing that little bulletin board that said, it's all going to be okay. Well, yeah, maybe, but it doesn't necessarily give you peace. And um, so she kept reading. I persevered in the reading, she said, and I did not let my mind wander until I found this encouraging theme. Set your desires for the greater gifts. Set your desires for the greater gifts. She stopped. She pondered that. Now I will show you the way which surpasses all others. For the Apostle insists that the greater gifts are nothing at all without love. And that this same love is surely the best path leading directly to God. At length I found peace of mind. The pathway was love. But that gave her peace. But at the same time it's, well, let's call it that, fairly generic in terms of an explanation because she said when I looked at the mystical body of the church I recognized myself in none of the members which St. Paul described what is more I desired to distinguish myself more favorably within the whole body love appeared to me to be the hinge of my vocation Indeed, I knew that the church had a body composed of various members, but in this body the necessary and more noble member was lacking. I knew that the church had a heart, 
and that such a heart appeared to be in a flame with love. I knew that one love drove the members of the church to action. That if this love were extinguished, the apostles would not have proclaimed the gospel no longer. The martyrs would not have shed their blood no more. Would have shed their blood no more. And I, I saw and realized that love sets off the bounds of all vocations. That love is everything. That this same love embraces every time and every place. In, in a word, that love is everlasting. She was quite thrilled when she discovered this, that she could be like the beating heart of the church. It didn't matter exactly what she did, you know, the specifics of the actions that she, but that, but that she do them out of love. She was, you could say, completely thrilled when she saw that, that she could feel herself to be like the beating heart in a body. Because after all, you wouldn't be able to walk or do anything or work if your heart is not beating. And the beating heart is like the center of the person. It's what, it's not the person, the person's intellect or intellectual capacity. It's not, you could say, the person's stomach, which is a reflection of the passions and the, you know, the, the passionate nature of the person. But it's the heart, the, what, is, what is protected there behind the chest. And uh, we, need, we need a heart to discover what God wants from us. And uh, this love that she talks about was expressed in the way that she dealt with others, especially those that she found particularly difficult or particularly annoying or bothersome. She recounts that story of a, in her convent that there was a nun that had the faculty of bothering her in everything she did. In her looks, in her, the way she worked, in the way she behaved, in the way she smiled, in the way, I mean, in absolutely everything. And she found her, this nun, this poor nun who is good, but she just found her intolerable. She must have had a squeaky, annoying voice or, or you know, just a way of talking that just, just irked poor Saint Therese and uh, every time she was going to do a recreation or work with this nun in, in the laundry or something she said oh my god I have to face this nun I don't want to do this I'm going to flee so she wanted to find some excuse to get away any excuse but then she realized that she said well I really have to be that beating heart and so she made the resolution, as you probably heard that story, she made the resolution to smile every time she saw this nun. Just smile, just smile. That's what she did. Every time this nun would appear, even though she was going to be like a coward and flee, instead she smiled at her. Maybe it was a bit of a fake smile, a grin, but it was a smile. And after some time, this nun said to her, Sister Therese of the Child Jesus of Lisieux, of the Holy Hand, of the Holy Face, I think that was her full, full religious title, I think Holy Face, not Holy Hand, but she said, uh, why is it that every time you see me, you smile? Why is it? And uh, Therese just automatically said, well, it's just, it's just that I'm just very happy to see you. 
And I said that knowing that I really meant that I was happy to see Jesus hidden inside her. She was hidden because Jesus hides in each one of us. And um, no doubt this, this nun was, she didn't hear her say that she saw Jesus, but she just thought, well, she was happy to see her. And that must have united them quite a bit, united them in the love of Jesus. So how can this happen in our life? How can it happen in my life? How can my life beat like that out of love for Jesus? After all, every saint had their specialities and they learned that. Saint Josemaria, as you know, discovered the beauty of the sanctity of ordinary life, of ordinary work. And um, God gave him a special light one day on October 2nd, 1928 to see the sanctifying value of ordinary, of ordinary things, of ordinary work. And that was the special grace that he received. And this month we will well, examine this more and reflect more on the founding of Opus Dei, the, the mystery of Opus Dei, well, the, the mystery of the, the message of Opus Dei ultimately. But, uh, of course, in these days in we, where we hear a lot about authorities imposing on our freedom and mandates of all kind, vaccine mandates and masking mandates and sanitizing this or that, freedom, of course, becomes more and more urgent for all of us. Because sanctity is not simply a code that you type into a computer or a computer program it's not simply a protocol, a special program where it just works. It just works. All you have to do is type it in and it works. Ultimately, and this is what uh, St. Therese Lisieux discovered, it's also what St. Osiris discovered, is that for sanctity to happen, for that beating heart to really take off, no matter what our circumstances, whether we're ill, whether we're healthy, whether we're smart or not so smart, Whatever place God has placed us, it requires our free, free correspondence. It cannot be done simply by typing in commands in a computer and then we'll become saints. And this is what St. Josemaria said in a meditation that he preached precisely on humility. He said, The spirit of Opus Dei, which I have tried to practice and to teach for more than 35 years now has made me understand and love personal freedom. Personal freedom. That's the first thing he identified as the most important thing. Personal freedom. He said, when God our Lord gives us his grace, when he calls us by a specific vocation, it is as if he were stretching out his hand to us in a fatherly way. A strong hand, full of love, because he seeks us out individually, individually, as his own sons and daughters, knowing our weaknesses. So we can picture now God, our Lord, stretching out his hands to you, inviting you to this divine vocation, to say yes to that beating heart of our Lord, 
And the Lord asks us, knowing our weakness, knowing our limitations. He says, the Lord expects us to make the effort to take His hand, His helping hand. He asks us to make an effort and show we are free. We are free. To be able to do this, we must be humble and realize that we are children of God we must love the blessed obedience with which we correspond to God's marvelous fatherhood. We are free. And so we should let Him really get involved in our life. Let God complicate our life. Let Him in. Or as He says, um, you know, He's stretching out His hand to us in a fatherly way and He expects us to make the effort to grab that hand and that taking that hand is the correspondence to the grace of God the grace of our vocation which can be done right here in the normal affairs of everyday life this was what in a, in a very summarized fashion that St. Rosemary saw on October 2nd 1928 so tomorrow but 1928 it'll soon be uh, you know, it'll soon be a uh, hundred years, not yet, but uh, it'll soon be that. And that day was a milestone in marking the exact historical moment in which the mind of St. Josemaria was illuminated with this clear and general idea of his own mission. When he saw that, that, that was probably around noon, October 2nd, 1928, in Madrid. Okay. He was, um, he was doing a retreat in the retreat house of the Vincentians and uh, he heard at that moment the bells of Our Lady of the Angels. Okay? And uh, there's a famous painting, well famous, I don't know if it's famous, but in the, in the church of Our Lady of the Angels, that is that church of which he heard the bells, there is a little side chapel at the beginning, and there you see a painting of St. Josemaria kneeling with the window open, and there you see the spire of Our Lady of the Angels. Today, if you were to be in the Vincenzians today, there would be too, much build, too many buildings. Many buildings have been built since then. But back then it wasn't, I mean, there were a few buildings, but mainly there was that other church. It's several, I don't know if it's a kilometer down or something like that, but it's a certain distance. But he heard the bells. You know, you know when you hear the bells tolling, it, 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 why do they toll the bells in church? It's to get people to get up and go. It's time to go to church. Or it's time to stop and say the Angelus. But he stopped and he knelt down and he felt a kind of a, you know, a tremor going up his, his whole body as though this were something eminently divine happening like somebody in the presence of the divine he knelt it was somewhat vague to him there was no structure no name no angel no clear idea of the message yet at least not yet but he did hear those bells and um, there was no traffic there were no buildings to block the sound but 
what were those bells actually tolling for? I mean, he understood in, those, in that moment on October 2nd, he understood it to be God basically opening up a mission for him to start this way. But in fact, they were tolling for something specific. I don't know if you know the author, Ernest Hemingway. He published a book in 1940 called For Whom That Bell Tolls. And Ernest Hemingway was... Uh, he was an American author, but he went to Spain during the Civil War, and he he helped in the resistance on the Republican side. But this novel that he wrote, just after a few years after the Civil War, uh, tells the story of a certain Robert Jordan, a young American in the International Brigades, attached to, to the Republican guerrilla, and in a unit, you know, during the Civil War. And his job was to dynamite certain bridges. And the book just shows the ferocity of the Civil War. There's a love triangle as well. And in the end, this guy, Robert Jordan, gets killed right after blowing up the bridge. And I think they probably made a movie of it too back then. But for whom the bell tolls, right? I mean, it's... uh, it's a strange title because it's not clear for whom the bell tolls. Maybe it was for Robert Jordan. But who, for whom were those bells on October 2nd, 1928 tolling? This was, of course, before the Civil War. Well, it has been said that that day they were tolling for a funeral so that we remember upon hearing those bells that somebody has died. So sometimes when you hear the bells, you're told, okay, it's mass time. But often it's agilist time or there's been a funeral. And usually the funeral is slow. Boom, boom, boom. And they're, they're quite, um, you know, it's, it's quite impressive to hear it. Uh, and we're reminded to pray for somebody who's just died, the funeral, and that we're not islands, that we're part of a, a great continent, and we must pray for each other. That's why those bells were tolling. Whoever was in charge of the bells that day had no idea that he was going to have such a great impact on the rest of the world. (laughs) The fact that we are here today is largely due to the fact that those bells tolled. Well, maybe they would have happened anyway, even without the bells, but who knows? Anyway, he remembered the bells. And so, Jose Maria had this vision as the bells were tolling probably 12 times he had the bell he had the vision of a new and refreshed church where sanctity was truly within the reach of ordinary people in their working lives in their families in their work in their studies he had this tremendous vision of people hard at work you know pushing buttons training widgets turning on screens. It was not, sanctity was not the stale purview of a clerical elite that is just a few priests or just a few nuns. So that with that funeral at Our Lady of the Angels, someone had died. And it's really a symbol of going to heaven, but 
also the premonition that an old order had now begun or had died or had begun to die. That mentality that it encrusted itself in certain sectors of society in Europe, certainly in Spain and many other places, which suggested that only certain privileged people could access the heights of sanctity. Only certain people, and you had to be a missionary, you had to be a priest, you had to be a nun, you had to do certain things in the church. Only few could arrive. This was never taught by the church as such, but it was like a, an, you know what I mean, like a, like it had encrusted itself on the church, and it needed to be, with the bell, tolling of those bells, it just needed to be, the church needed to be free of that idea. And uh, God wanted the church to open the fresh air of the early church, of the early Christians, really, to bring that back in some way. And uh, that's why, probably not much later, St. Isaiah marveled at this ancient passage from the letter of Diognetus. Diognetus is a, a guy from the 2nd century, uh, which testifies to what the early Christians were like. Right? So he's describing to his friend what the early Christians were like. And uh, I believe it refers to the Christians in Rome, but I'm not 100% sure, but it's the second century, so it's a really early period in the church uh, during the time of persecution and so forth. But even before Christianity had become you know, widely you know, public in the sense that it hadn't become legal even. And he says it quite beautifully. He says... Christians are indistinguishable from one from other men, either by nationality, language, or custom. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon the reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress and food and manner of life in general they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in whether it is Greek or foreign and yet and yet there is something extraordinary about their lives they live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign land. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. Which is, so it's a good little addition there, no? Which was the common practice, I guess. No? They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they live, yet, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. So it's a, it's a beautiful uh, 
excerpt this letter to Diocletus uh, about the life of the early Christians. You know that they were really, you know, ordinary people. And now, on October second, nineteen twenty-eight, it's almost as though that very letter had come to life in this vision. It's as though God wanted that letter, that description, which really described the true situation of the early Christians, needed now. Okay, let's bring this back. As I understand, the letter Diognetus was unknown for many centuries. It was like hidden away in archives and was rediscovered sometime in the 19th century. I would like to know more about that, exactly when it was rediscovered. But it wasn't known for centuries and centuries. I mean, it was known for a while, but then, you know, these things disappear, right? We don't exactly know who wrote it. But it is a very important letter. And so, tomorrow we, we celebrate this day because it's an inspiration from God, and God our Lord wants something out of all of us. It was Pope John Paul II who said in, 19, in 2002 that, that St. Josemaria that he founded by divine inspiration and prom- promoted the universal call to sanctity and that St. Josemaria never said no to God. He just said yes, whatever God wanted. And so all this phenomena really uh, is, is uh, not explained by human reasons. Right? It's really a kind of a how can I say, it's a kind of an eruption of the divine in the world, in the modern world. At that time, he was, only, he was only 26 years old. He had the grace of God and really good humor. That's about it, as he used to say. It was something totally unforeseen. He knew that God was asking him something, but he didn't quite understand fully what. And um, he knew there was something but he didn't know what. Now this became more clear. And then as he went on, different aspects of, uh, of the spirit of Obus Dei started, uh, you know, started uh, fitting in, like the reality of divine filiation, right? that, that we are sons and daughters of God. That became more and more feature that he began to insist on. And um, like, that, like that time, which he discovered what, that time when he was on a tramway, and he was standing there, and this worker got on, uh, this would have been in the 1930s or so, who was covered in overalls and covered in lime, you know, this sort of dusty white debris from the mines or something. And as he was passing by, he purposely, out of disdain for, for the priest, because he saw he was a priest, he rubbed up against him and left his cassock on one side all all tattered with this white line which would have taken quite a bit of effort to clean up. And everybody snickered as they saw this because it was an act of uh, you know, disdain towards the priest. And so St. Josemaria, without skipping a beat, turned around and said to the worker, my son, if you have begun this, let us finish it completely. And he turned around and gave him a big hug and, uh, and held the hug. And by that, by that time, he was so comp- covered in lime, you could, he didn't even look like a, white, uh, like a black cassock, he looked like more like a white cassock. No? And, um, 
and that was an expression of joy at being a son of God. Nothing, in some ways, nothing really. He was not afraid of anything in some ways. That way he became, as the church has said, the initiator of this new pathway of sanctity in the church. And also, in many ways you could see, he was a master of the, divine, of, uh, the interior life, a guide for saints, a kind of a coach to open up horizons. He was not merely a theoretician. So, we know that, you know, God knocks at our door. He knocked at St. Rosemary's heart. And let us ask the Lord to dispose us today to give special thanks for that gentle knock because St. Rosemary had his ears attuned, refined, and he could hear that knock. He could hear the bells, but he could hear what was behind the bells, that message that God was asking him, well, to found day, even though he didn't really know what it was. And it really was the essential beginning that day, October 2nd, of what would later be called the history of the mercies of God. And when we give ourselves to God, uh, we give ourselves also to his, mis- to his uh, mercy, and in particular also to the intercession of Our Lady of Mercies, who will help us in this great adventure of sanctity in the middle of the world. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, and my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.